Let's pray together. Father, as we turn now to your word, we pray that through these inspired words, through what you inspired Moses to write, you would indeed be holding us fast. And Father, I pray that these words in particular today would give us courage and boldness for our times. And I pray that you would give us confidence and faith and hope and love and joy because by these words, Lord, we ask that you would prepare us to die. We pray that you would prepare us for the end of our earthly lives. Lord, we ask that you would give us a hope by means of what you've inspired here, by means of what you've given to us. We pray that you would give us a hope that transcends death, a hope for renewed life in a renewed creation. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us who we are by means of this word. We love you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his death and resurrection, which makes these things possible. And we pray that you would be pleased to conform us to the image of Christ now. We ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 5. And as we approach Genesis chapter 5, I'll just note that when I uh, saw that it was going to be evident that we were going to have to uh, uh, cancel or suspend our normal gathering and that we would only be doing something that would be live-streamed, uh, I thought about going away from this series on Genesis, and I thought about perhaps doing a psalm like Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, and so forth. Uh, but as I was reading Genesis 5, just devotionally this week, it struck me that this is an enormously timely, timely passage for just what we are dealing with. Uh, we are facing a global pandemic, and this passage has this refrain, and he died. But these people who die do not die without hope. So the Bible in Genesis 5 is really forcing us to stare death full in the face. But the way that it's teaching us to stare death full in the face is hopefully. It's teaching us to look, look at death and know that we are going to die because of Adam's sin, but it's also giving us a hope that goes beyond death, a hope that goes beyond this life in this world. And the Bible everywhere attests that there are far worse things than death. There are far worse things in the world than the end of our physical lives. So I want to say here at the outset that as we, as we make our way through this life, we should be careful not to live for the things that result in death. And, and really, all selfishness, all self-centeredness, all sinful transgression, all disregard of other people. This is, all, this is all pursuit of things that are going to result in death. We should, we should live for what counters death. And what counters death is being mindful of other people, seeking to love other people because we love God. So uh, I would invite, with you, I'd invite you to look with me at Genesis chapter 5. And the first thing I want to observe here 
is that the first statement of Genesis 5, the words, this is the book of the generations of Adam, this is a statement that corresponds to what we saw in 2.4. In 2.4, we had, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then we're going to see a statement like this over in 6.9. These are the generations of Noah. And then the next one after that is in 11.27. These are the generations of Terah. So it's almost as though Moses has given us these headings at 2.4 and 5.1 and 6.9 and 11.27. These are the generations of, as though what he's telling us about in chapters 1 and, 1 and 2 is the creation, and then 3, the fall, and 4, Cain and Abel. And then now when we get to chapter 5, we're going to get the line of descent that goes from Adam down to Noah, and that's what chapter 5 will give us. And then we have the flood story in chapters 6 through 9. Then there's a kind of uh, genealogy of all three of Noah's sons in chapter 10, uh, the Tower of Babel at the beginning of chapter 11, and then another genealogy at the end of chapter 11. And these two genealogies are very significant because each of them has exactly 10 members, 10 names in the genealogy. So there are 10 persons from Adam to Noah, Adam being one, Noah being 10, and then there's another 10 from Noah's son Shem down to Abraham. Uh, Again, Shem being number one in uh, Genesis 11, and then Abraham being the 10th member of that genealogy. So these 10 member genealogies take us from creation at Adam down to Abraham. And, And this communicates to us that the, again, as we saw in recent weeks, the, the words of judgment that we read in Genesis 3, 14 through 19 are really going to be countered by the words of blessing that we have in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The judgment spoken over Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is going to be answered by the words of blessing spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And these two 10-member genealogies walk us steadfastly from Adam to Abraham. And just as a, a point of application here... The blessing of Abraham is fulfilled in what God has accomplished in Jesus. So this is the story of the world. The story of the world is a story of human sin that brought on God's judgment, that that has mankind banished from the Garden of Eden under the judgment of God, which includes death. But then God, out of his own free mercy and grace, blesses Abraham, and then he fulfills those words of promise to Abraham by sending his own son, the Lord Jesus who died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, to overcome death, to make it so that we could have a resurrection hope and a life, a, a, a hope for a life in a new heaven and new earth, a, a renewed creation. So as we begin Genesis chapter 5, we have that structural note, and then I want to draw your attention to the next statement there in verse 1 of Genesis 5. It says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. For now, I just want to pass over verse 2. We'll come back to verse 2 in just a second. Skip to verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So the, the way that this is worded, God has man or Adam in his image and likeness, and then Adam has Seth, his son, in his image and likeness. And what this tells us is that if Seth in Adam's 
image and likeness is Adam's son, then Adam, in God's image and likeness, is God's son. And this is a point that that is brought out explicitly in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, when Luke is walking back through the generations and he gets to Adam and he refers to him directly as the Son of God. This is significant for our understanding of the whole Bible because uh, later in the book of Exodus, we will see the, the nation of Israel referred to as God's son in Exodus 4, 22 and 23. So you have Adam as the son of God, and then the nation of Israel in Exodus 4, 22 and 23 is identified as the son of God. And then God makes a promise about the seed that he's going to raise up from the line of David in 2 Samuel 7. And he says of David's son, David's seed, he will be a son to me. And this tells us that the Lord Jesus takes up the role of Adam and the role of Israel when he comes as the son of David, son of God. And then remarkably, as we think about the New Testament, um, the the various New Testament authors will say to Christians, you are all sons of God by faith. Or or, um, Paul will say to the Ephesians, be imitators of God as, as dearly loved children. And what these statements indicate is that by means of of union with Christ by faith, as Christ is the Son of God, we we too are sons of God. We are, Paul describes Christ as our our brother, and so uh, we are sons of God. So this means that as we are renewed into the image of Christ, we are transformed into the very image and likeness of God, which is the way that God created Adam in the beginning. So this is a a significant feature of the Bible's teaching, that there's a sense in which Adam was the son of God. Not that he's divine, not that he's the incarnation of God like Jesus would be, but that he is, in terms of his relationship with God, like a son of God. And now I would invite you to look there at verse 2. We we read, following out of verse 1, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, verse 2, male and female he created them, and he blessed them. Now, this should immediately remind us of Genesis 1.27. Back in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, Genesis 1.28. So what the author is doing here is reprising that earlier chapter, uh, Genesis 1.27 and 28, here in Genesis 5.1 and 2, and then he continues... In Genesis 5, 2, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, this is a very interesting feature of the way that Moses talks about humanity. And I just want to make a, an observation about the use of language here and about the way that the Bible influenced the English language. There, historically, the English language has been a language in which you could refer to mankind, humanity, simply as man. And then you could refer to people with a generic masculine singular. You could say, when a man wants to do something, he does this. And then and you could go on talking about what people do in general by means of these generic masculine singulars. And what's happened in our culture is uh, people have become... Uh, uh, reticent to do this because they don't want to exclude females. Well, 
I think the English language was doing this because of the massive influence of the Bible on the English language, on the speakers of the English language. And those, those early uh, writers of English, English and, and users of the English language, uh, they, their minds were so pervasively affected by statements like this in the Bible, it was never their intention to exclude uh, women. But, but we are now in a culture where people are moving away from a biblical understanding of men and women, and they, they're even reticent to use uh, masculine and feminine pronouns with masculine and feminine people. I mean, I was in the public library uh, this week, and the lady at the desk had a name tag on, and it, and it had her initials, and then it said preferred pronoun they. And I'm just sitting there looking at this, thinking, this is a person who works with books. This is a person who works with the English language, and this individual wants to be referred to by a plural pronoun. And, and I think that the ideology behind this is that it is somehow prejudiced to, or, or wrong-headed in some way to refer to this individual woman by feminine pronouns. Um, I, I, I want to say two things about this, about this whole phenomenon in our culture. Um, the first thing that I want to say is that I think for evangelistic purposes, there can be valid reasons to become all things to all people. So, in other words, if I were going to try to share the gospel with this woman, at the, at the, which I only interacted with her for two seconds, I didn't have an opportunity to do this, but I would probably not immediately attack the pronouns. I would, I would want to go to her with the gospel, and then if she begins to perceive her, her sinfulness and her need of, of knowing God and of being reconciled to God through Christ, then eventually we might get to creation and we might address the pronouns. But um, I think it's, it's valid to become all things to all people and for the sake of the advance of the gospel, respect their preferences. But I also want to say this. So that's the first thing. But the second thing I want to say is... Um, we don't want to let the world colonize us. In other words, we don't want a, an imperialistic, secular ideology to force us into its mold so that we don't think in biblical terms and so that we don't use language the way the Bible uses language. I think it's a good thing that the English language and the usage of the English language was shaped by the Bible. And I would suggest to you that when we read here in Genesis 5-2, that's exactly what we're seeing. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man. So uh, I think it's a valid thing to become all things to all people. I also think it's a valid thing to speak the way the Bible speaks about these things. Okay, so having noted these, these first couple of, of things about uh, Adam as a son of God and this linguistic point about the usage of these pronouns... That brings us really to the content of the chapter, Genesis 5, and what we have here are amazing lifespans. This is a very patterned chapter, and, and the chapter pretty much falls out in, in, in a very similar sequence. So it begins with Adam, and, and what we read about Adam is what we're going to read about all ten of the characters in this chapter. So if you look at verse 3, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his, own image and in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And every one of these accounts is going to say, when so-and-so had lived a certain amount of time, he fathered a son. And then it's going to tell us 
as it does with Adam there in verse 4. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And the pattern is so regular and so consistent that as we were reading it as a family this week, uh, we, we got about six um, names in, and we got to the seventh name, which is Enoch, and I began to read the account of Enoch, you know, um, and, and in verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, and then one of my children chimed in, and he died. That's what we were expecting. And that's kind of the point. The author is setting us up to expect, and he died, and he died. But we get to Enoch, and the pattern is broken, and Enoch doesn't die. And that's one of the great messages of this chapter. One of the great messages of this chapter is, yes, people die, but there's hope that goes beyond death. And if you walk with God, if you trust God as Enoch did, then you can expect to have your faith take you beyond the reach of death. Uh, as, As we work through this, there are questions that come to us. Uh, we, verse 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And then in verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And it really goes this way throughout the chapter. The, these lifespans are, are enormously long. Adam lives 930 years. Seth, in verse 8, 912 years The longest is Methuselah, down in verse 27, 969 years. And scholars have proposed various theories to to account for these years. Some scholars have said perhaps there's some symbolic um, thing being communicated. And if we think about that, the longest of these is almost 1,000 years. So, So Methuselah lives 969 years and in the Bible, the Bible sells, sells, says elsewhere things like um, uh, a day it, for the Lord is like a thousand years, and, and a thousand years are like a day. And so even the longest living human being doesn't even live for one of the Lord's days in, in that kind of symbolic reckoning. And that could be intended to communicate to us, your life is short. Your life is Short, and that that brings us to I think one of the one of the main points of this chapter, which is that Genesis two seventeen is true. The Lord warned the man and the woman. Really, it was the man. The, the woman had not yet been created in Genesis two seventeen. The Lord warned the man uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat in the day you eat of it. You will surely die. And what we're being shown in this genealogy is that all of Adam's descendants die. And Paul brings this out in Romans 5, and he speaks of how death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not receive direct commandments like Adam did. Death reigns in the world because of sin. Just a broader point of application here. We see in this the truth of God's Word. And and this is a point that Every time I've had the opportunity to to preach a a funeral, uh, it's an occasion to say, the death of this person attests to the truth of the Scriptures. 
the scriptures say that people die because of sin. And all, the scriptures say that all people are sinners. And all people die. So we could, we could look at the numbers and we could say, okay, maybe there are uh, symbolic things that are to be communicated here. I think that's, there's some validity there. Other scholars have looked at this and said, maybe there's some other way, some other system of calculation. And people have, have proposed uh, something called a sexagesimal, I believe is the word, where, where you, you don't go by hundreds, uh, you go by six num- uh, divisions of 60. Um, and this would be reflect, reflected in things like you have 60 seconds in a minute. That would be a sexagesimal. And so if you calculate things that way, uh, it, it, it would bring down uh, the, 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 the lifespans. Um, I, I'm going to observe in a moment that you can actually, you can start from Abraham. And we, there's, there's a pretty wide consensus on the date of Abraham's birth, 2166 B.C., and you can just walk back through these gene- genealogies and add the numbers together and arrive at a, at a calculation of, of when uh, it appears Adam was, was created. We, and this, it's on this basis that scholars in, the, in Christian history, famously Bishop Usher, Usher, have calculated the date of creation on the basis of these genealogies. And I would just observe that if you go to these sexagesimal uh, calculations, all it does is, is shorten the period of time between now and creation. So uh, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of, about whether indeed we should resort to that manner of calculation. Another thing that's been proposed is that perhaps um, there was some other, other way of reckoning a year than the, the 365-day calculation that we use today. Um, the, the, lo- lots of different proposals are out there. Um, so you have people who have, who have offered those kinds of explanations of the numbers. And then another set of people, they, they look at this and they say, okay, let's take this literally. Let's, let's take these years as though they, are, they really happened. Why do they shorten? Why do the years diminish? And they do. They steadfastly diminish. And it particularly starts to happen in the genealogy in Genesis 11, which is the, the, descend, the descendants who live after the flood. And on this note, I would also observe that there are these, these ancient lists of kings from places like Sumer. Sometimes this, these documents are referred to as Sumerian king lists. And interestingly, um, some of these lists have exactly 10 generations from the, the creation of the world to the flood. And those king lists attest to abnormally long lifespans, much longer than the ones recorded here in, in the Bible. So I'm just pointing out that there are other cultures that have similar traditions to the one that we have here, and I would regard this as um, um, distortions of the true account. I think we have the true account here in the Bible, and, and in a way, the Bible's account has demythologized these sort of legendary mythological expansions that do reflect the 10 generations and the long lifespans, but the Bible is telling us uh, the, the truth. Um, so so the, the lifespans diminish, and some have offered explanations for this, that um, uh, perhaps prior to the, the vast multiplication of, the, of people and the ongoing defilement of the world as a result of human sin and the increasing violence of the world as a result of human sin. I mean, if you look at at Genesis chapter 6, 
Uh, we see in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence, that as that happened more and more, it resulted in diminishing lifespans. And then there seems to be a connection here with Genesis chapter 6 when the Lord says in verse 3, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. And, and after the flood, that's the, at the beginning of the flood account, after the flood, it's as though the lifespans, they just steadfastly, resolutely shorten until they, they sort of fall in at about, about 100 years or so. And then in, in later passage, we read of three score and 10, which would be 70 years. So the Bible um, is, is giving us this information. And I think in some ways, we, we are meant to ponder it, and we're meant to say, well, it looks to me like the Bible is telling us um, some very interesting information, and I'm sure we'll learn more of a, about this when we uh, see clearly, uh, not as in a mirror as we see today. Now, having said all that, I want to do this. I want to say, let's read these numbers in relationship for, with one another. And when we do that, when we put the numbers together and we read these numbers in relationship to one another, we come up with some fascinating conclusions. So I'm just going to tell you what I did. What I did was I started with Abraham's date, uh, his, birth, his date of birth, 2166 B.C., and then I went to Genesis 11, and I started at verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram. That's Abraham. So I took 2166, and I added 70, 2236, and I took that as Terah's birthday. And then you can continue that process back through the generations. If you want to see my, um, my calculations, you know, reach out to me. I'll snap a photo of this and text it to you. Um, but let me give you the results of all of this. Um, as, I, as I mentioned a moment ago, there are, there are 10 figures from Shem, Noah's son, down to Abraham, Abraham being the 10th. All nine of the post-flood figures from Shem to Abraham are alive according to the numbers in Genesis 11 when Abraham is born. And, and all of these guys, but Abraham is alive when Noah dies, okay? So in other words, um, Noah, he... he he lives until the lifetime of Abraham's father, Terah. Abraham's father, Terah, according to these numbers, would be 24 years old when Noah dies. That means that by Abraham's day, Genesis 12, the flood is very much a living memory. You've got Noah and Shem, guys that got off the ark, who according to these numbers would have been alive in Abraham's father's day. And, and Shem, the son of Abraham, according to these calculations, actually outlives Abraham. And, and so, you know, I, I don't know, we're not told whether Abraham ever met Shem, but he could have. He very much could have. And he not only could have met Shem, he could have gone and met Shem's son, Arpachshad. And so, if Abraham, once the Lord appears to him and reveals himself to Abraham and calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. If, if Abraham wants information about this God, he can go and find Shem and get eyewitness testimony to what the pre-flood world was like. 
and get an eyewitness account of what life was like on the, on the boat. And then he can go to Arpakshad, Shem's son, and he can say, is your dad crazy? <laughs> is he telling the truth about, about all this? And then if he still got doubts about this, he can go to Shelah, Arpakshad's son, and say, are your father and grandfather crazy in the stories that they're telling about this boat? I mean, Abraham had nine generations that he could have accessed, all of whom uh, would have in their lives, including his own father, Terah, all of, all, of, all of whom would have had the opportunity to meet Noah. Noah dies, according to these calculations, in 2208 B.C. Again, Terah would have been 24 years old, so that's about you know, 50 or so years before Abraham himself is born. So I think the Bible is giving us a claim to historical veracity by means of these numbers. Let me give you some more numbers, okay? That's a lot, of, that's a lot from the gene- genealogy in Genesis chapter 11. From this genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, and again, you can, I'll, I'll share with you my uh, calculations. You can do them yourself. It's not hard to run the numbers. Just take Abraham's birth in 2166 and then start working back through with a calculator or, you know, doing the math in longhand, whatever you want to do. Um, what we see here is that uh, the genealogy in, in Genesis 5, according to these numbers, Lamech, Noah's father, would have been 56 years old when Adam died. And every one of the figures, nine of the ten figures, every one of these figures except Noah would have been alive when Adam died. So excluding Noah, the previous, nine gen- the previous eight generations, and then, and then Adam himself being the ninth, according to these numbers, would have been alive when Adam was alive, which means that the creation and the Garden of Eden and the original fall into sin, for these guys, it's all, it's all in living memory. So Adam has Seth. Seth can talk to his father about what the world was like when it was made. And then Seth has Enosh. Enosh can talk to his father and grandfather. And then Kenon comes to Enosh, and he can talk to his father and grandfather and great-grandfather Adam about all of these things, all the way down to Lamech, who until he is 56 years old, can talk to his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam about what the world was like when it was made. Now, sometimes people say, well, the, the genealogies in the Bible are open genealogies. That is, they skip generations. I don't think that can be said about this one. And the reason it, I don't think it can be said is because look at how it works. Uh, this one and Genesis 11, they both work this way. You, you start with Adam, Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, the days of Adam, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son and named him Seth. And then verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Now, sometimes people will say, well, fathered in the Bible can be used of a grandfather. Well, even if that's the case, it's still telling us that Seth is 105 when, if you want to insert some generations, his son or his son's son fathered Enosh. Do you see what I'm doing there? Even if we insert those generations, 
you still have this testimony that Seth is 105 when Enosh comes into the world. So I don't think the, the idea, which we, you do have elsewhere in other genealogies in the Bible, a, a grandfather or a great-great-great-great-grandfather referred to as the father of someone later in his line. That does happen in the Bible's genealogies. But even if that is happening here, you're still getting the age of the patriarch at the time when the next person in the genealogy is born. So uh, I think the numbers are meant to be read in relationship to one another, and we are meant to think through these implications. So again, um, up until the time that Lamech is 56, he could have accessed Adam. And then after the flood, uh, up until the time that Terah is 24, he can access Noah. And then Shem, as I mentioned, outlives Abraham. This is remarkable information. And then in terms of, of skip generations, if you go read the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, um, from Adam to Noah, there are exactly 10. And then if you, if you go back from there and you go from Shem to uh, Abraham, there's only one more name inserted there. And, and, and uh, that would not add that much time, and I think that name is suspect, and the reason I think that name is suspect is because um, of the, the, the symmetry of the ten from Adam to Noah and then the ten from Shem to Abraham. Um, so I, I haven't done as much work on that as I would like, but there's, there's more work could be done on that. So again, um, what we're seeing here as all these guys die, if you look at the end of verse 8, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And then we read of Enosh, who fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan, 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. We have these long lifespans, and then it concludes, and he died. Verse 12, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. That's an interesting name. Uh, Mahalalel. This would be equivalent to the, the English name praise God, or you might render it praising God. So if you want to name your kid praise God, but you don't want it to be that abrupt, you could name him Mahalalel. I don't know why we don't have more children named Mahalalel. Maybe my wife could explain that to me. And then verse 13, Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel and 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. So many years, so little recorded. If we think about our, our much shorter lifespans, and then we think to ourselves, what might go into the Bible about our lives? I mean, I suspect that some of these guys were really good at some things, and I suspect that some of them were inventors of, of things that were enormously helpful to others, or perhaps they, did, they accomplished mighty feats in their day. None of that is recorded. Do you notice what's recorded? He fathered the next person in the line of descent. Why would, why would, why would this be here? This is here because Moses is tracing the line of descent of the seed of the woman. And that's what he's mainly interested in. The, women are excluded. 
He had other sons and daughters. That's mentioned. They're not excluded. Excuse me. Women are not excluded from the genealogy. Uh, each one of these guys has other sons and daughters. But the interest is in the, the line of descent of the seed of the woman. And the reason for that interest is faith. These guys, th- this genealogy is attesting to the hope that the seed of the woman will come and that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and vanquish God's enemy and then hopefully, as we'll see in just a second, roll back the judgment and that extends to death. And and we'll see that attested to here in just a moment. So we see the truth of God's word. We see the line of descent of the seed of the woman. We see that creation is in living memory for these pre-flood generations. We also see in the shortening, the diminishing of the lifespans, we see that sin not only brings death in the world, but as sin abounds, it shortens life as well. It not only ends life, it shortens life. And that brings us, I think we're to verse 21 now. And I would draw your attention to Genesis 5.21, where Moses writes, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Uh, it, 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 this has been interpreted in, in different ways. Uh, but before I talk about the, the different interpretations of God taking Enoch, I want to observe that we're told twice here in verse 22, Enoch walked with God. And then again in verse 24, Enoch walked with God. And I think that Moses means for us to think here of Genesis 3.8, where the Lord walks in the garden in the cool of the day. And then he's going to tell us in the next chapter, in Genesis 6, verse 9, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Um, so, so Enoch is walking with God. And what this is pointing to is a way of life that is aware of God's presence, God's covenant presence with Enoch to watch over him, to take stock of what he does, to evaluate the choices that he makes, to bring judgment when he sins, and to bring blessing when he walks in a way that is in accordance with God's purposes and in accordance with God's instructions. And why would anyone walk in accordance with God's instructions? Because they believe what God says. And God clearly says in the Bible, if Uh, you transgress, you're going to suffer. If you will heed my word, if you will do what I'm calling you to do, if you'll believe what I'm telling you, then you will experience my favorable presence for good. And uh, Enoch lives at a time of abounding wickedness in the build-up to the days of the flood. According to my calculations, there are different calculations, but according to these calculations, Um, the flood comes around 2500 B.C. The date that I arrived at when I added all this up was 2558 B.C. 
Enoch, according to my calculations, is born at, in 3592 B.C., and he lives 365 years, so he dies in 3227 B.C. Enoch lives at a time when things are becoming worse and worse. People are becoming more and more wicked. It is normal in Enoch's circles to despise God. It is normal in Enoch's circles to celebrate wickedness. And for Enoch, God's presence is bigger than those other voices in the culture. For Enoch, the presence of God, the truth of God, is more significant to him by faith than all of these other influences. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Some have taken this to mean Enoch was directly translated to heaven. Because of the way that the pattern is disrupted, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he was not, for God took him. I think that's, that's a valid possibility. That could be what happens. And we read later in the Bible of Elijah, where uh, these chariots of fire come down from heaven, and Elijah is, is taken to her- heaven on these chariots of fire. That may be what happened to Enoch. It could also be the case that this is a way of saying that Enoch died. But it's a way of saying he died differently than these other people who die. He was not. Maybe, maybe that means he died. God took him. And I think what's being communicated is he was acceptable to God. Whichever way you take it, it is, I think it's, it's certain that Moses means for us to see an example of someone who by faith lived in the presence of God and then who did not experience the consequences of the curse as those who don't live in the presence of God do. And, you know, Jesus says things like, um, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he'll say things like, um, if you believe in me, you will never die. Jesus, I, I don't think, means to say your body is not going to physically die. I think he means to say your life will transcend death. You will go beyond death. You will die in the hope of the resurrection. And then we continue, verse 25, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. What's interesting I think about Methuselah is, again, when you, when you run these numbers, the year of Methuselah's death is 2558, 2558, the year the flood comes. And I think there's symbolic significance in the fact that the man with the longest lifespan completed his lifespan before the flood came. So it, it seems that what's being communicated by, by this aspect of the genealogy is that God was very merciful. God was very patient. He was, as he describes himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, slow to anger, that that he allowed this man, Methuselah, to live out the fullness of his longest recorded lifespan before the floodwaters came on the earth. God is very, very merciful. Uh, you, You may be a person who has lived your whole life disregarding God. If you are alive, it is not too late. It is not too late for you to begin to walk with God by faith. 
And then that brings us to Lamech in verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered his son and called his name Noah. Now, the word, the Hebrew word Noah means something like rest. And then he goes on, Lamech makes this comment about Noah, and this is unusual. We've not seen uh, fathers making comments about their sons in this genealogy. But Lamech says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. And if you just look back at Genesis 3.17, the Lord says there, cursed is the ground because of you to Adam. So Lamech is, is presented referencing the curse, the words of judgment that God spoke over the ground. And then Lamech con- continues in 529, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful, the painful toil of our hands. And again, back in Genesis 3, we read of this painful toil when the Lord said to Noah, right there in Genesis 3, 17, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So this painful toil that Lamech references is the very painful toil that the Lord brings into the world because of judgment. And and when when Lamech says, this one shall bring us relief, there's a kind of wordplay on the name Noah. Noah's name in Hebrew is uh, Noah, and then the, the word for relief is Nacham. So there's a same two first consonants, and then those two terms are going to echo all through Genesis 6 through 9 as, as rest is going to be brought and as comfort and relief is going to be brought from the flood. What is Lamech saying here? I think Lamech is saying, we're looking for the seed of the woman. And we are now 10 generations from Adam. In this 10th generation, perhaps this will be the one who will bruise the serpent's head and who will roll back the words of judgment and who will make it so that the world is the way it was prior to the entrance of sin into the world. I think Noah is communicating hope for a rollback of judgment that will extend to, to a rollback of death. So when we put Enoch and Noah together, we have this passage hinting at a new life in a renewed creation. The, we have evidence that these early figures, these pre-flood figures, they were hoping for a time when death would be overcome, when the curse on the land would be removed, and when people would have relief from the painful toil that was God's judgment. So I think by faith, we're seeing evidence of a hope for resurrection and a new creation here in Genesis chapter 5. As we continue, verse 30 tells us, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then look with me over at Genesis chapter 9, verse 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So it's as though the flood is inserted into the genealogy in the account of Noah. And he died rings through this chapter. But the chapter is teaching that death will not 
have the last word. Enoch did not die. At Noah's birth, Lamech is expressing hope for a removal of the curse of God's judgment. The Bible is teaching that for those who walk with God, for those who put their faith and hope in God's Word, there will be a life beyond death. As I was reflecting on this, I couldn't help but think of of, uh, funerals that I've done here at Kenwood Baptist Church, and some that I've done not here at Kenwood Baptist Church. And as as I thought about this chapter full of names, these people's lives that received this short summary of how they contributed to the line of descent, and then they died. I thought of Tom Bond and Edna Bowles and Geneva Bishop and Bernice Ferguson and Mary Abel and my own grandmother, Martha Lou Graham, and Debbie Thompson. And I didn't do Dolores Miller's funeral, but she died as well. For all of these people, for all all of these folks who trusted the Lord Jesus, who walked with God, death will not have the last word. Each of us will die, whether by the coronavirus or some other means. Each of us will die. For those of us who walk with God, for those of us who hope in God's word and trust him, death will not have the last word. We want to live with death in view. It's a sobering and clarifying reality. We want to live for the things that we'll be glad for people to talk about at our funerals. And we want to live in such a way that even if all that is recorded of us is that we lived, we had children, and we died, or even if we don't have children, we lived and we died, it can nevertheless be true of us that we lived for the things that promise life. We did not live for the things that result in death. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you for the clarity of its teaching. We thank you for the joy of walking with you as we seek to understand what it is that you have revealed in the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that you would cause our hearts to burn. Lord, we pray that you would make it so that as we read the Gospel of John and he refers to the way that Moses wrote about him, we would know that the seed of the woman will be the one who will bring us relief from our painful toil on the ground. The seed of the woman will be the one who will make it so that and he died is not the last word for us, but we were not because the Lord took us. So, Lord, we thank you for this testimony, and we pray that you would use it to make us wise unto salvation. And, Father, we pray again that you would grant safety to us, to the whole of our congregation, and to our loved ones, to our neighbors and friends. We pray that you would keep us clear of this virus, but, Lord, we also pray that you would use this this crisis to cause people to seek you. And we pray that you would make us faithful in this time to serve and love you and our neighbors well. And we pray, Lord, that as we have more time, because there's no March Madness to suck up all our time, and there's no no Major League Baseball, and there's no college, none of these distractions, Lord, we pray that you would make us focused on the things that matter most. 
We pray that you would help us to redeem the time in these evil days. And we pray that our lives would be to your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.